Welcome to the Data for Betterment podcast, Reimagine Hybrid Work, with your host, Maribel Lopez. Maribel is the founder of the Data for Betterment Foundation and Lopez Research. The Data for Betterment Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps individuals understand and prepare for how their career will change as companies embrace new technologies. Lopez Research, a market research and strategy consulting firm, helps companies understand how technologies such as connected devices, collaboration, cloud computing, and AI change the customer and employee experience. The firm's clients range from startups to global corporations, including 10 of the Fortune 30. She's also the author of the highly regarded business book on how those technologies are transforming the company, employee, and customer experience, Right Time Experiences, published by Wiley. She's also a frequent public speaker at corporate events and contributor at Forbes.com. Maribel is currently researching and writing her next book on how to build successful strategies for workplace transformation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, listeners. I recorded this episode in late Q4 of 2021, but the audio file had technical issues. Fortunately, the audio team was able to restore the files. As you listen to this podcast, consider how you can turn your employees into fans. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hi, I'm Maribel Lopez, the founder and principal analyst at Lopez Research, and I'm thrilled to be here today with David Merriman Scott. He is a marketing strategist, entrepreneur, best-selling author, and in my opinion, a very interesting person. We met in around June of 2021 at the screening of a Vidyard documentary called Reconnection. And at that documentary premiere, I had the pleasure of moderating a panel with the stars of the film about how technology such as video were creating societal change. So David and others had fascinating insights. So I thought it would be wonderful to have him on the podcast. And I'm so grateful that he actually accepted the invitation. So David, welcome to the show. Hey, Maribel. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It was a fabulous documentary, loved being a part of it. And um, you are one very skilled moderator. So thank you for for the work you did with that. Thank you. So on your site, you have a section that's about you, which I actually am going to be redoing my site and talking a little bit about me as well. And there are three great adjectives that you mentioned, passion, connection, intensity, And, you know, really, it's never been more important to genuinely connect with people. And we've never had more tools to do so. Uh, Yet companies don't seem to be getting meaningful results. What are we doing wrong? And is there anything we can do to turn the tide on this? Well, what's really interesting is how few people write their bio in the first person. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that I observe is if you look at any corporate website, if you look at practically any personal website, it's almost always written in the detracted third person. You know, David Merriman Scott did this and David did that and he did this. And But it's way different if you are writing in the first person. And when I changed that on my social networks and my website, it made a huge difference. And if anyone wants to see what I mean, my full name, David Meerman Scott, I use my middle name for search engine marketing because there's many, 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 many David Scotts out there. Go to my LinkedIn profile and you'll see that my about section on my LinkedIn profile begins like this. I was fired, sacked, 
Um, my bosses <laughs> were, uh, I, I forget where it goes from there, but my bosses thought that my marketing strategies were too radical for them. It's like, wow, number one, it's first person. Number two, it's written with conflict. Number three, as you say, the passion shows through. I don't know what it is, whether MBA programs drive people to be boring or if just this idea that you can't write about yourself using the pronoun I, I don't know what it is, but I think that we all are passionate about something outside of work typically, um, can be inside of work too. But when you show your passion, that's infectious and people gravitate to you. And part of that passion comes from talking about yourself as if you were talking about yourself to somebody over a dinner table, not in the dispassionate third person. That's actually a very interesting concept because I think about this when I was in high school. I used to write a lot of really interesting things, but by the time I got out of business school, everything looks like a research report. And I'm in research, right. but you know, frankly, I read some of my stuff sometimes. I think, oh God, this is boring. I really <laughs> should zip it up a little. So I'm yeah. going to take that to heart. You know, and, it's really, you know, it's really interesting. I've written 12 books, but the one I'm best known for that has sold more than all the other 11 combined is called The New Rules of Marketing and PR. First came out in 2007. It's now in the seventh edition. I actually completed the eighth ed edition yesterday, which will be out in 2022. But that book has sold, well, nearly a half million copies in English. It's in 29 languages. And it's one of the biggest books ever published by Wiley, my publisher, the biggest business mm -hmm. book publisher in the world. This is one of the biggest books I've ever published. So when I submitted my manuscript, there was a ton of stuff in first person that I had talked about my experiences and what I saw and what I was noticing. My editor got back to me and, goes, we, and said, we don't, really don't like all this first person stuff. Now, I, this is not how they said it, but my, interpret <laughs> that was the context. my interpretation was they said to me, David, we want you to vague it up and make it in third person. I refused. I said, no, this is my book. You should publish it. And they were incredibly surprised when it hit the bestseller lists and sold a hell of a lot of copies in the first year. Way, 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 way more than they projected. And they backed off on this idea of not doing things in the first person. <laughs> So that's a lesson learned to everybody that is writing marketing, to put the people back into it, put yourself in it, uh, yeah. put yourself in your company. And, you know, one of the other things that you're known for is this concept of creating customers from fans and creating fans from customers. Can you tell us a little bit more about a term you coined around that? I'm not going to give it away. Yeah, but I'm I, sure people I, have seen it but, and what the principles are. Absolutely. I call that a fanocracy. And that's the subject of my most recent book. Well, actually, my second most recent. That came out in, in 2021. I wrote fanocracy with my daughter, Reiko. She's um, yeah. now 28 years old. She's now an emergency doctor at Boston Medical Center doing her residency. And we started this project about six years ago when I was getting frustrated with the superficial nature of online communications and how we just get sucked into the algorithms, especially Facebook, and how too many organizations are just interested in spamming or trying to just push information out there about their products and services and how on the other hand, I'm incredibly passionate about the things I love. I love to surf. I love live music, especially the Grateful Dead. I love camping. We'll talk about that hopefully a little bit later. I mean, th things like that I'm incredibly passionate about. So I recognized, as did my daughter, who's passionate about K-pop and Harry Potter 
and Comic-Con and some other things that we're both passionate about these things that we love. And then when we thought about it, we recognize that many of the most successful organizations are those that have built fans. No, they're not just selling products and services, they're building fans. So we decided to undertake this project to just do a deep dive into fandom and how and why people become fans of something. And so we spent about three years co-researching and then a couple of years co-writing this book that eventually became called Fanocracy. And a couple of things that were really interesting to us. One of the most interesting was we spoke with a number of neuroscientists. And in fact, my daughter Reiko's undergraduate degree at Columbia was in neuroscience. Um, and we spoke with some PhDs in neuroscience about how and why somebody becomes a fan of something. And it turns out that one of the biggest reasons is that all humans, you and me and everybody who's listening or watching to this, are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. That's part of our DNA. It's part of our what our brain is designed to do is to be part of a tribe of like-minded people because originally that was a survival technique. If you were out on the plains in the Serengeti 10,000 years ago, you were safe and secure if you were with your tribe and you were vulnerable if you encountered other humans or you were not with your tribe. And so much of that is carried through today so that when I'm at a Grateful Dead concert, which I was twice last week, I went to Red Rocks to see Dead and Company twice last did week. Did you really? That's I did. Fabulous. It. fabulous. That's my tribe. I've been to 83 Dead concerts and that's my tribe. And I can turn to anyone in the audience, never having met them before and have something in common that we could talk about. Right. So um, fabulous. And so the challenge becomes how can an organization develop that kind of tribe of like-minded people. And it's totally possible. And the first step is just to get away from just selling products and services, but instead think about how you can build a tribe of like-minded people. And there's a number of different elements to that. But the basic idea is to become more human as an organization, to become an organization that is looking at developing relationships with people as opposed to just selling them stuff. And I think if you are, if you are acting like a person and you are connecting with people, your products are inherently better over the course of time, right? Because you're building something for someone. So there's a need that you're meeting. There's a goal that's accomplished. And sometimes I think products are done in the inverse. It's like, I built something. Let's see if I can sell it to somebody. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I, think, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that having done all the research around this, that in many ways, people are not necessarily buying the product itself. What they're buying is a relationship with an organization. They're buying the solution to a problem. They're buying something that makes them feel good. I mean, there's lots of different reasons that people will buy something. And so the sooner that we can figure out what are the reasons that people are interested in what we're doing and how we can show that we've got this passion, the better. I'm going to give you a, a fun little example. Um, I met a, a dentist at a, an event I was speaking at a couple of years ago, Tony Robbins event. I speak at his business mm -hmm. mastery events around the world. And 
His name is Dr. John Marashi, and Dr. Marashi came up to me after my talk and said, David, I love this idea of passion. I love this idea of building fans. I'm a dentist. How the heck can I build <laughs> fans? I mean, people hate their dentist, you know? And I said, well, Dr. Marashi, tell me a little bit about your practice. And he says, I'm, um, uh, I'm a dentist in Southern California. There's 10,000 other dentists in Southern California. We all do the same thing. We clean teeth, you know, we fill fillings and you know how can i be different i said well what do you love to do and he said i'm really passionate about skateboarding i love to skateboard and i Mm -hmm. said well let's figure out how you can combine skateboarding and dentistry and so that was just a 10-minute conversation after my talk at an event he contacted me a couple months later and he said david i've taken this to heart i've got skateboards on the wall in my practice I skateboard from one examination room to another. Uh, I have pictures of me skateboarding on my website. And I created an Instagram with many of my um, the photos and videos on my Instagram being of me skateboarding. A year later, I spoke with Dr. Marashi. He said, I've got 25,000 followers on Instagram. My business has grown 30% in the last year as a result of what you shared with me. The single, that little thing you shared with me about passion, David, I've grown my business by 30% in one year because people are attracted to the dentist who loves to skateboard. I'm different than every other dentist out there. And so what are you buying when you go to the dentist? Yeah, you're buying, you're filling getting filled. You're, you're, you know, you're the hole in your tooth getting filled. That's what you're buying. But The relationship with your dentist can be with somebody who's passionate, in this case, about skateboarding, even if you're not a skateboarder. doesn't matter. You're attracted to the fact that this person is super passionate about the thing that they love. And that's just lost in business today, I think, because so many of us and so many businesses, it's just about that financial transaction. It's like selling you a product. That's it. That's what we're doing. You know, give me your money. Here's your your bag or here's your filling and get the hell out of here. (laughs) But, you know, Dr. John Marashi, and you could, you could just do a Google search on him or an Instagram search, Dr. John Marashi, you'll find him. He's super interesting dude. And it's all about this sharing his passion and building what I call fanocracy around his dental practice. So clearly that's one tip for everybody that is listening is to try to figure out where you can inject passion, how you can create fans I know we've got a lot of other changes that are happening in many ways that marketing has changed. So what do you think is going to happen moving forward? Are we going to continue to use things like video? Will the use of video change? I mean, TikTok's obviously been huge. Instagram's been huge. People are talking about the metaverse now. Mm -hmm. Uh, When David thinks about it, what does he think about? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really important to me right now is I believe that the face the Facebook algorithm is the most destructive technology ever invented, ever. I've been writing about this for two years. As we're making this recording now, it's really coming out with the so-called Facebook papers that it really is as destructive as I've been writing about for the last couple of years. You know, the Facebook algorithm is tuned to get people to click on the stuff that they find makes them angry. Um, Mm -hmm. It's tuned to get people to engage with content that's polarizing. It's tuned to support conspiracy theories. And I think the fact that so many organizations are built on social networking marketing, they're built on sharing things on 
Instagram or Facebook or, or whatever it might be. And, and all of the social networks to one degree or another use similar algorithms, Facebook being by far the worst. I'm very, very conscious now about how marketing can be much more human. And there's many elements of that. We've talked about a few, you know, something as simple as writing in the first person, something as simple as showing what you're passionate about, something as simple as engaging as a human in a human way, as opposed to putting yourself at the mercy of these incredibly destructive algorithms. So what I see in the future is that there will be a much more human approach to business. There'll be an approach to business that's much more rooted in the kind of business that our great, great grandparents did. You know, when you went down the corner market and, you know, you knew the person who sold you the chickens. And I think that, I think that that is a way that we can choose to do business. And, you know, sometimes people push back at me and say, well, David, you know, we're, we're a B2B business to business company or, you know, we're a consumer brand or, you know, whatever they push back and say, you know, we, we can't do that. And I said, anyone can do it. And one of my favorite examples is the battery company Duracell. Batteries are one of the ultimate commodity products, right? A battery is a battery is a battery is a battery. You put it into your, you know, your, your wall clock and it goes for a year and it runs out and you have to put a new battery in. So, you know, what do you do? You go down the corner store, you buy a battery or you go to Amazon, you buy a battery. How do you choose which battery to buy? Do you buy the cheapest? Do you buy the brand you recognize? What is it? Well, Duracell is a popular battery brand. And what's interesting is that Duracell has a program called Power Forward. Power Forward is a very big initiative by Duracell to give away for free batteries to people who are victims of natural disasters where the power has gone out. Mm. So imagine a hurricane, a flood, a tornado, a fire, things like that, which happen and the power goes out. When the power goes out, obviously, batteries become in demand to power flashlights, radios, and other things. Just at the time that Duracell could be gouging customers, charging more for their batteries because they're in high demand, they have a fleet of trucks in the Power Forward program that go to that natural disaster area, physically go there with literally millions of batteries and they give them away for free. No obligation. You don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to give them your name. They're just handing out packages of batteries for free to people in the natural disaster zone. So what is that doing? It's humanizing business. It's providing something of value for people when they need it the most. And, you know, the straight MBA approach to business would suggest that that's a really dumb idea. To give away your batteries is a really, really dumb idea based on the MBA approach doing business. However, when you think about the human approach in business and somebody doesn't have any power, they're cold, they're hungry, and they don't have a flashlight batteries, all of a sudden their flashlight is going, at least one thing is working for them. They can find the toilet in the middle of the night and right. they remember who gave them that battery forever. And they, That's many, true. That's many true. of those people become customers for life. 
because that was the organization that showed some humanity when when that humanity was needed. And Ramon Valentini is the vice president of marketing at Duracell says, this is the most important program we do. This is way more important than advertising. It's way more important than anything else we do is the simple act of giving away batteries to people who need them. And, and this program has become pretty extensive. Hurricane Maria was a couple of years ago in Puerto Rico. They actually worked with the U.S. National Guard to put the trucks onto C-130 aircraft and fly the trucks down to Puerto Rico after that hurricane so that the trucks could be on the ground in Puerto Rico the day after the hurricane. And I've got some wonderful pictures that Ramon shared with me of people waiting in line to get batteries in Puerto Rico the day, after these, the day after this. And so I just think that any organization, your organization, my organization, anyone who's listening or watching this can be thinking about how can we make business more personal and not just have a financial transaction. Absolutely. That's such a powerful story and it's so human. Thank you for sharing that. Now, what excites you about the space going forward? There's obviously a lot of um, tension and turmoil in the world and a lot of great technology advancements, but what are you thinking about in the future that really excites you? You talked a little bit about executives creating passion, people actually connecting more with each other, other things we should be looking at. And, and what are you working on now? <laughs> obviously written amazing books. What's coming up next from Miriam um, Scott? I just finished yesterday the eighth edition to the New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is my biggest international bestseller, and submitted it to my publisher just literally yesterday. So at the moment, what I'm looking forward to is a deep breath and uh, hanging out for a little <laughs> bit. But then that book will come out in early 2022. It'll be the eighth edition of that new roles of marketing and PR. And, you know, the reason I keep updating it is because things are constantly changing. The strategies around online marketing have remained the same. Instead of spending money on advertising or trying to convince the media to write about you or hiring salespeople to knock on doors, either virtual or physical doors, it's way better to create the kind of content people be attracted to. So that hasn't changed since the first edition I was writing back in 2005, almost 20 years ago. What has changed are the different tools that we can use to get our, our stuff out there. And so in this edition, I wrote extensively about social audio tools like Clubhouse. I wrote extensively about the dangers of algorithms. We talked about that briefly, especially the Facebook algorithm. And so I'm constantly updating the book with new stories as well. But to me, I think I'm doubling down on what we've spent time talking about here. I'm doubling down on the concept that business is not only potentially more profitable if done in a human way, witness companies like Duracell and Dr. John Marashi, but um, I think we can all have more fun and and, and live a better life that way, you know, rather than just looking for how we can exploit people to attract, to uh, extract money out of their wallets. How can we be helpful to the world and helpful to the community and helpful to the environment and be a part of humanity that does good. And as a result, we have a, a business that thrives as opposed to so many of the alternatives that have been taught in business school for so long. And that's what I'm hopeful for. And that's what I'm 
been pushing for and talking about and and sharing over the last few years. And it's something I believe pretty strongly in. And I think lots and lots and lots of other people do as well. And I'm here to say that that type of approach to business, that type of approach to marketing can be even more lucrative than the typical MBA approach to business. Well, as somebody in a relationship business, I'm really happy to hear that. And I'm trying to build those kinds of relationships every day. And it's not about volume, it's about connection. And I hope that more businesses actually look towards that as they're recreating these, these cultures in this new land of hybrid work and reconnecting with customers. And I have one last question before I let you go. I saw that there was a, a magazine edition down east, and it actually featured you and RVing. So what have you learned about RVing, and did anything surprise you? So interesting. So I, I've been a camper for much of my life. I was a a Boy Scout when I was a kid, and I, I hated the whole Boy Scout thing, but I loved the camping part, which is why I stuck with it. <laughs> okay. um, when I was um, when I was when I graduated from high school, my buddy and I got into his car and 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 drove around the country for three months, and the whole time we camped in national parks, national forests, and so on. It was a fabulous experience. Hadn't really done much camping since, and then the pandemic hit, and after having been on an airplane practically every week going somewhere interesting in the world. I've been to 107 countries, all seven continents. All of a sudden, my travel stopped. Yes, and I know. Me too. You, right? I mean, and my it just was a really different world. And for a while, I kind of liked the idea of, of not traveling, you know, not getting on airplanes, not staying in hotel rooms, spending more time with my family, my wife, my daughter, uh, and so on. But then I was like, I kind of got that itch a little bit more. And then I don't even remember how it happened, but I kind of hit on this idea of camper vans and being the kind of person I am, I started to get obsessed about them. And so I dug in pretty deep going on forums and chat rooms and and, and digging in deep on the idea of camper vans. And then very soon after that, I decided I was going to buy one. And so about a year ago, in the latter part of 2020, I ended up buying a very tricked out Mercedes-Benz four-wheel drive camper van nice. that is, it's absolutely fabulous. It's got a full-size bed that retracts up into the ceiling, tons of room to store stuff below the bed. I've got a full kitchen, 24-gallon water tank, a hot shower, a toilet. Um, Mm -hmm. I then tricked it out even further with a great stereo system. And it's a four-wheel drive, so I can get into dirt roads and stuff and put in a better suspension system. And it's got solar power on the roof. I can be off-grid for a full week and have enough water, enough power to be off-grid for a full week. So it's it's a fabulous machine. And so far, I've, I've done only one f- major trip. I went, I drove down to Florida and back, camping the whole way up and down. Mostly, though, I live in the Boston area. Mostly, though, we've been doing surgical two and three day trips into national forests of New England, which has been fabulous. Why yeah. do you ask that? Why do you choose that particular nugget to ask <laughs> me about? Are you a camper as well? I'm a camper wannabe. So we're Ah. talking about it. So I was really curious as to what you learned and take care of my hometown because I'm a Boston girl. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, no, the camper van thing has been a really important part of my life. I'm really surprised. Coming up on almost exactly a year that I've owned it, I've done 29 nights in the van. That's um, That's a lot for, 
you know, and I own two houses. So that says a lot that I've been in the van for 29 nights. And it's, um, it's really a wonderful machine. I'm really, really, really pleased with it. Well, I look forward to seeing you sometime soon if you make another trek down uh, south. So thank you so much for your time, David. And I look forward to your new book coming out. My pleasure, Maribel. Thanks so much. Cheers, everybody. Bye-bye.